to Mormon Expression. I'm your guest host, Seth Lay. A lot of ex-Mormons and, and closet non-believers are afraid to talk with their friends and family about their non-belief for fear that they will be shunned or ostracized or in other ways uh, jeopardize their family and friend relationships. Well, I'm in an interesting situation. I've actually got my father, Alan Lay, in with me this week, and uh, we're going to talk about the Mormon church and non-belief, my apostasy, his relationship to, to the church and science, and possibly discuss some, some topics specific to Mormonism. So, Dad, how's it going? And why don't you uh, introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Alan Lay, Seth's father. I served a mission in, for the Mormon church in 1956 to 1958. I've been active in the church since that time. I'm currently serving as a membership clerk in a young single award, adult award. I'm not a scientist, but I do have a lot of interest in science. I have two master's degrees in electronics and computer engineering. And I've retired now after 44 years of work as a, an engineer, uh, beginning with hardware and then working most of the time with uh, software engineering. So I appreciate, Seth, this opportunity from your invitation to, to visit with you about our beliefs. So first off, I'd like to mention that you have a website. It's actually called The Convergence of Science and Religion. A comparison of science and the Mormon Church. You, I'm sure one could Google, you know, the convergence of science and religion or something, and probably get you. Otherwise, we'll make sure that a link is up at the MormonExpression.com website. In this, you have a lot of articles where you uh, have one section, for example, that that shows parallels between what you believe to be Mormon beliefs and science, and just, just some other stuff. I, I'd like to ask, would, would you sort of consider yourself to be an LDS or Mormon apologist? Yes, I think I would classify myself as an apologist because I have a, a strong belief in the church, and I interpret things in context of the church uh, teachings, and when there are differences, such as with science and religion, that I try and interpret them, and even interpreting the Mormon beliefs as well as the, the scientific uh, like I guess I don't really interpret the scientific research because the scientists do that, but I try and interpret things such that it explains or minimizes any difference of, between the two. So I would consider myself an apologist. Excellent. Well, you know, a lot of ex-Mormons and non-believers talk about a shelf. They say that, you know, you run into some belief that the Mormon church has and, and one of the, the – that the, the, like contradicts science or, or is contradicted by sort of the reality of the world or something. And a lot of non-believers talk about this metaphorical shelf that they would just put these issues on and say, well, I'm just not going to think about it. Or, you know, I'm sure all that stuff will get resolved eventually someday in the celestial kingdom or during the millennium or something like that. So I'm just not going to think about it. And one thing I have to say, and I guess I kind of got this from you – is that you do think about these things. So rather than just ignore these things and put them on this metaphorical shelf, I know that you do actually try to engage the science, try to engage reality, and think about the church. And it seems like you do kind of modify your religious beliefs a little bit so that you can kind of interpret them in a way that's consistent with, with science and with, with evidence, and, and that you try to you try to harmonize those in some way. Because I, I do know that you're you're not one of those people that like that like disbelieves the science. You know, like you're you're not like an anti-evolutionist or 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 think that there's some great scientific conspiracy to hide the evidence of God or anything like that. 
and yet you you do believe in the Mormon Church. Can what can you tell us about your attitude towards science and uh, how it relates to your faith? Let's look at both uh, science and religion from the viewpoint of truth. Truth is truth, and it really can't contradict itself because if it if it's contradictory, then something has to be false in there somewhere. So I believe that truth in science is just as important in its own sphere as truth in religion. It's different, of course. So, for example, science talks about the creation of the earth and uh, the history of man going back 10,000 years to the Ice Age and um, longer than that, even back to a million years in terms of some of the very early uh, ancestors of man. A literal interpretation of the Bible talks about a 6,000-year period going back to the creation of the earth, and so we have to have some way of correlating between the two, because I believe that truth in science is just as important as truth in religion, so that they can't contradict, and if there is contradictions, then somewhere there's not a complete uh, picture or complete information being given. One of the uh, church leaders, I don't remember a person by name, but he said that their mission is, as, a, as church leadership, their mission is the spiritual salvation of people and the spiritual growth of people. And they leave science for the scientists. And I think that's really a great expression, leaving science to the scientists, because that means that I can accept science and scientific research as the basis of the foundation for understanding how our physical world uh, operates. Then, that, then I have to try and interpret the scriptures uh, within the context of, of science. So concerning the, the physical world, then I have science as my, my foundation. Concerning the spiritual world, then I have the scriptures as my foundation and try and establish a correlation between the two. And I do this by interpreting in, or changing, even changing interpretations perhaps so that there's less conflict between the two. For example, there are two approaches that uh, Mormons take towards the scriptures. One is a very literal interpretation, and this, I think, ties into the, the European culture of the, the Mormon immigrants, where the Bible is interpreted very literally. If the, Some people even interpret it so literally that they consider a, the day of creation spoken of in Genesis as a 24-hour day. Well, other people may be a little bit more general and considered as an uh, undefined period of time that the earth was created in six uh, periods of time. So that's a very little interpretation, but science disagrees with that, at least with the timing of the time frame of all of that, because it goes back uh, 4.8 billion mile, or billion years for the uh, history of the earth. So I have to, in order to have an agreement between the two, then I have to interpret the scriptures not so literally as a lot of people would like to do, but to interpret them more generally, uh, more metaphorically, more symbolical, symbolically of uh, meaning so that we can have an agreement between the two. That's just an example of having two viewpoints of something that have a disagreement and I'm trying to reinterpret so that there's less uh, disagreement between them. Well, okay, I'd like to discuss this in a couple of ways then, because you brought up a point a couple minutes ago, and if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of go back and, and sort of discuss the various things that you mentioned in your in your answer. You did say that, that you regard the, the church and the scriptures and so forth as pertaining to people's spiritual salvation and, and leave the 
the, the Earth history and, and the, the way the world works and things like that to the scientists, I'd like to point out that that's, that's actually a relatively recent attitude, that if you go back in, in, the, in the history just of the church alone, but also just in the history of, of the scriptures, they thought that they actually were talking about the history of the Earth. And, and like Joseph Smith made all sorts of pronouncements about the history of the Earth and, and sort of the progression of, of creation and the purpose of creation and sort of the mechanics of the Earth and things like that. I just don't see how you can really separate the church from its pronouncements in the past about like the nature of the universe, about the nature of the earth, about the nature of matter, about the, the process of creation, you know, about like the significance of things like the, like the flood of Noah and, you know, the fall of Adam and things like that. These people were making claims that, that are testable. And I think it's a little bit of a cop out actually when, Mormons say, well, sure, they made these claims back when the scientists didn't know any better, and, and these people claimed that these things were true. But now that we do know better and that the science does illuminate uh, subjects that people were simply guessing at in the past, to, to not be able to go back and sort of hold the, the founders of your religion accountable for the things that they say, I, I do think is a bit of a cop-out. You're right, Seth, that it is a relatively recent uh, understanding of leaving science to the scientists and the, the scriptures being more of a, a spiritual uh, approach. That is quite recent. And it's, we think of a prophet as being inspired, but Joseph Smith said that a, prophet, a man is a prophet only when he speaks as a prophet. And so I believe, and there are many Mormons who believe that the prophet can speak under revelation and inspiration, or he can speak his own opinion about things. And the taking a very literal interpretation of the Bible that people has people have had that historically, I think, indicates that the early church leaders were not speaking necessarily under revelation, but were speaking their own opinions, which their Back, their culture and their background was from Europe and from having a very literal interpretation of the Bible down through the, the Middle Ages and so forth. If you recall, like from the Book of Mormon, there's this theme that the scriptures were actually written for our day, right? Like that the scriptures in the Book of Mormon, for instance, wouldn't have even been generally available to the people in the Book of Mormon. They were really compiled and written for, for our day that by our day, they didn't just mean Joseph Smith's day, that they meant sort of the latter day when the church would come into being. And obviously the church has been around for 170 years or so now. I have to assume that when that if the Book of Mormon were true, which I obviously don't think it is, that when God says he has these scriptures to come forth in our day, he kind of has in mind the entire period of time we're talking about. So I don't understand how it is that it makes any sense at all that, that God would set up a system where his prophets and the and scriptures would record things in their ignorance, okay, not knowing any better, you know, making pronouncements about the, the nature of creation and, and, and the, you know, the Garden of Eden, the Tower of Babel, things like this that were just like pure mythologies, you know, from the Middle East or whatever, that, that these things would be recorded and God would know that they weren't true, and yet God would let his prophets record these things and miraculously preserve them for our day only 
to put Mormons of our day into the situation where these scriptures are subsequently disproven by science and have to and, and sort of be confronted by that and have to figure out how they're going to deal with that. How is that any different than God putting the dinosaur bones in the ground to, uh, to try our faith? I hope it's different. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't see how it is, though. Because, I mean, okay, let's just say for the sake of argument that Mormon really existed and really did copy the records in, right? So he okay. copies in the record of, like, the Book of Ether, right, which records this incident of, like, the Tower of, of Babel where – you know, the, the the people are scattered and the languages are confounded and so forth. Well, I mean, this is just like pure mythology, okay? I mean, so maybe some Mormon apologist will disagree with me on this and say, well, it's possible that there was a local Tower of Babel, which we shouldn't interpret was the scattering of everybody in the world and the origin of all languages, because we know that the languages came about in a completely naturalistic way. Maybe there's, there's this hidden Tower of Babel story that really did happen that confused a couple people's languages that's not going to show up on our scientific radar because it was just such a localized event. Okay, forget that for a moment. Let's take the scriptures seriously. The Tower of Babel story really happened. I think it was a myth. Okay, if I'm right, God let Mormon put a myth into our scriptures and confront people like me and you in our, you know, in the 20th century and in the 21st century, with having to reconcile that, I don't think there's a lot of reconciliation that has to happen, Seth. Like I believe, for example, that there is truth. To, there is a basis of truth to the, the Tower of Babel story, and I also believe that God works through natural law, and that I believe that any language changes would have occurred through natural means. Because things occurring through natural means, that does not imply that God was not involved. Because I believe that he works and he does everything through natural law, whether it's the flood or the changing of languages or whatever it may be. And keep in mind that the ancient prophets wrote in terms of their culture, their the type of writing would be based upon their, their understanding and their concepts of heaven and the earth and, and so forth. Sure, but were they writing for the, our day or for their day? Because if they're looking ahead and writing for our day, then God would, you know, these people were writing stuff that was going to be either written or, and or preserved by the power of God for our day. So therefore God was involved and he would have to know that this stuff that they were writing was simply the mythology of their day. So how does it make sense to you that God would let his prophets represent as truth to our day things that God knew were just the mythology of, of their day? Mormons believe in general, I think, that the Book of Mormon was written for our day, but let me talk about that for just a moment. The Book of Mormon is written for our day, we say, that primarily because Mormon and Moroni, who did the, Mormon did the uh, translations or the abridgment of the, the Nephite records, and Moroni did the translations of the, the place that gave us the Book of Ether. They lived towards the end of their society, and so People in our time, Mormons today, make the assumption that because they lived at the end, they were doing their work of abridgment and, and translations for people who would come in the future, not necessarily for their own uh, own society at that particular time. This does not imply that the earlier writer, writers who did the earlier records for the Book of Ether that were translated by Moroni or the earlier Nephite historians who recorded the religious and the, the uh, historical record of their people, 
there's no implication at all, at least there shouldn't be any implication at all, that those earlier writers wrote for our day. They were writing history based upon what they thought they were supposed to be doing, which I think would be written more for their day. But it was not until Moroni and Mormon became involved and during the abridgment and the translations, and they were at the end of their society. So we say, well, was that their work was done for our day. I think but, I understand what you're it, saying there, but, but how does that, that solve that, the problem? Keep, keep, keep in mind, Seth, that when Mormons say the Book of Mormon is written for our day, that is just our interpretation of things. That's our, that's our perspective. It may be true, it may not be true, it could be partially true, it may not be true at all, I don't know. Okay, so you make a distinction between the original authors of things like the Book of Ether, which you say may well have been written for their day, and, 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 and I will just remark as an aside, I think it's interesting that that should make a difference to you because I guess it makes perfect sense to you that God would be okay with people writing mythology for their day if they actually believed it, even though God knew better. But anyway, even with that aside, you're trying to make a distinction and say, well, because the earlier authors were writing for their day, then the, then the problem that I asked you to, to kind of confront isn't really a problem. But Mormon was still writing for our day. So even if he was taking source material that the original authors thought was true and had intended for, the, for their own time, that doesn't, that doesn't explain why God was okay with Mormon putting this together into a record that was intended for us. I mean, you can't, I, mean I don't see how you can get that, that Mormon stuff wasn't written for our day because he wrote these plates only to be buried straight into the ground. It's like nobody even had a chance in his day to to read that stuff it was pretty much straight from his hands into the end of the hill Camorra. right that's the that's the, the basic reason i think why people today say that the book was written for our day was because mormon did his abridgment moroni did his translations and then moroni wrote some things at the end and he buried them in, into the ground and well, i think it's more explicit than that the civilization was destroyed but it's I, more I just explicit caution, than that i just caution that that is an interpretation and anytime you get into interpretations, and I tend to be to be cautious. Well, another, and, another thing, Seth, is that you have referred to God letting the ancient prophets put mythology into their records, but you're assuming that the Tower of Babel was mythology. I believe that it had some basis of, of actual history, on more of a probably I'm guessing on, on a, a local basis, not on a global basis. And it's also, as I mentioned, God God works through natural laws, so any changes of languages would be done through natural means, not through some miraculous thing that we don't understand. Right, like <laughs> like the Tower of Babel. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I can't I, just, get, just I can't give the, the details because I'm pretty hazy on them. But the, as I understand it, the Hebrew understanding of heaven was not like we think of heaven today. So it, I interpret the phraseology of trying to build a tower to reach heaven as being a very high tower. Okay. By not the way... Not, not necessarily one that would go light years and light years, you know, in height, but a relatively high tower compared to the towers or the other, other buildings that were being built at that time. You know, it does, it does kind of strike me that, that the scriptures contain these stories where there's this very, very active God. And you can see the parallels between, you know, these, these scriptures that Mormonism holds to be true. I mean, the Book of Mormon, the, the Bible, the Old Testament, and so forth, contain all these stories 
of this very, very active God. You know, I mean, someone's going to build a high tower. Okay, so what? People do, like, the most, like, outrageous things, and the God that, that would exist today just sees it all and just bides his time and doesn't do anything. We don't see any evidence anywhere of any interactions between God and the real world, any sort of retribution by God or anything like that. You look in the scriptures, and there's all this mythology of, of God's interactions, you know, such as the Tower of Babel. So people were building a high tower. You're like, okay, they didn't really think they were building a tower to heaven. They just thought they were building a high tower. Okay, let's run with it. So they're building a high tower, and God confounds their languages and scatters them. Why? I mean, what's so bad about building a high tower? And then if you want to get all theological about it and say, well, it was their attitude of, of what, it, what it said about their relationship to God, I say, so what? I mean, just look around the world today. I guarantee you there are people with a far worse and more hostile attitude towards God than anyone in those scriptures, and God doesn't do a thing about it. Well, keep in mind, Seth, that the, you're really talking about more of the bias of the historians than anything else. The scriptures were written by people who believed in God and they interpreted events in terms of God, and so their writings are very full of this relationship between God and the people. But then you refer to conditions today, and you're talking, you're thinking, I think, primarily of information and uh, records and writings and so forth of people who don't believe in God or who have various uh, visions of God, perhaps. But it's a very different. The, the writing comes from a very different with very different context to it today than it did back then. Then the people were very religious and they wrote in terms of their own religion. If you take people today who are very religious, whether it's the Mormon religion or some other religion, they could give you a history of the events today that would show a very intense relationship with God because that's their viewpoint. You could also take people today who don't believe in God and they would give you more of a secular history of the events today, which doesn't mention God at all because that's, the, that's their bias and that's their background. So we're really talking more about the bias of the historians than, than anything else. You know what I see when I look at the records of today, um, as far as the interaction of God, I see a bunch of lost car keys that were found. And, and, and then, you know, I see people calling the elders to come and, and, and bless someone as they wheel them into the emergency room for surgery by highly trained doctors. And lo and behold, you know, three weeks later, they, they leave the hospital still alive. You know, I mean, how miraculous is that? It just seems like the God of, of, of the God that Mormons imagine to exist today just seems so unattached or like detached from us and from interactions with us, and yet the scriptures are full of this stuff. And to me, I think it's pretty easy to explain why. It's because the scriptures were just mythological in nature, just like, like every other culture's mythologies. People who have faith in God interpret events as being related to God. And so I look at my life and the events that happened to me, and I interpret them in terms of my relationship with God. And I find that my life is very full of things coming from God and blessings coming from God because that's the interpretation that I have of the events. You, in your life, you look at the same events and you see those as the uh, things, at least you don't see them as coming from God. Yeah, exactly. So like we, we have different viewpoints and to me, life is very full of God and to you, life is very devoted of God just because of the perspective that we have. You know, what, what I see is I see people and I think it makes perfect sense because, you know, people are real. 
Um, I don't think God is real. Uh, if I look back in my own life, you know, this past year, um, if I had still been religious, I would have said, yeah, God was on my side. Like when I had to lose all that weight in order to go up to Phoenix and get weighed in and get taped for, to, to try and get back into the Army, um, into the National Guard, and I had to make a very, very strict Army body fat percentage measurement um, by such and such a date. And against all odds, I went up and did it. And then I went before the board and got accepted, and, and, and I had people pushing for me. If I was faithful, I could easily, easily have interpreted all of those events and say, see, it, I mean, this is just proof that God is watching over me because look at what happened. Look at the things that happened that were sort of like against the odds. Well, when I look at those things with my eye of, of unbelief, what I see is people. You know, I, I, I mean, I worked hard to lose the weight, and I went up to Phoenix, and the people up at MEPS were, were kind, and they wanted to see me succeed. And so when they measured me, I was close enough that, you know, I mean, they measured me perfectly legit and everything, but like, like I've always said about the Army body fat measurement, if, if, if you're very close and the person wants you to pass, you probably will pass. And if they don't want you to pass, you probably won't because there's always a bit of human error there. Anyone who's in the military and has been taped before is listening to this will know what I mean. Those people were kindly disposed towards me. And, and so I think that their kindliness pushed me over the edge. And, and I had people... You know, in the OCS uh, group who, who wanted me to succeed, they wanted me to get into the program and get that opportunity, and so they worked for me. I, I look at what a faithful Mormon would ascribe all to, like, the miraculous intercession of God and, like, this overwatch by, by the Lord. And instead, what I see are, are people who were doing their best to help out another person, and, and I can blame it all or, like, attribute it all to just, like, well-intentioned people. Just like when I look around the world and see all the evil that goes on and all the people who, you know, you know, are murdered or, or run into like, um, you know, mafia gangs and have to pay extortion rackets and, and, you know, have their businesses destroyed or get raped or, you know, whatever is going on. And I can blame all that on people, too. So I think that what a lot of people attribute to God or to, to the devil is really just whether or not you're dealing with well-intentioned people who who care about each other and and actually do things for each other, or whether you run into like complete bastards who who are evil people or or not kindly disposed toward each other. And uh, that's just it. It's just a purely human thing. I don't think I don't think God is necessary to explain really any of that stuff. I think in, to in a way, you're the both both viewpoints are correct. You're correct that. It was a relationship between you and the caring people that were working with you, as you've explained. And from my viewpoint, God was behind the scenes helping to motivate these people. And they've had a maybe years and years of development through their life and to have them become the caring people that they are today because they're not, they may not have been caring perhaps when, in their earlier years. So I, I, because I have faith in God, then I believe that God was behind the scenes helping these people to become who they are today. He works through natural law and through natural people and through uh, events of people to people. I, I think that you can get you can say the exact same thing that you just said minus the God and nothing's right. changed. That's you know, right. I mean it's the it's the it's the it's the real people 
you know, doing the best they can. In fact, like when I look at the Mormon church, okay, one of the, one of the common defenses I, I, I get from believers is, well, I think the church is a good influence. I, I like the church. I like the community. I enjoy the fellowship of my fellow members and all this other stuff. And what I see is not evidence that this must really be true. I see evidence that this is truly a human enterprise and most people who are going to be involved in something like a church, unless they're like some cynical cult leader or something, but you know, most people who are going to be in the Mormon church, just like most people who are active in the Catholic church or the Baptist or anyone else are well-intentioned and tend to work hard to make that relevant in their life. Uh, so I see Mormons doing everything they can to, to make the Mormon church relevant in their life and to be helpful. And I see leaders taking an active interest in people's welfare you know, more often than not. And so you have the Boy Scout leaders that really helped you out or were inspiring, you know, examples to you when you were younger. You have um, Elders Quorum or Relief Society people that, you know, you just enjoy their fellowship. Well, that's because they're people and they 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 want to have a place to go and, and, and hang out with people who, who, who are kind to them in return. I, I just don't see any need to ascribe any of this to like a higher power. It's like, if people can explain all of this as a human enterprise, then why why have to aim any higher than 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 the people who actually exist? Yeah, you've mentioned a proof. These things happen not to prove to anyone. It's really my belief in God is based upon the faith I have in God, and so I interpret things in terms of that faith. You interpret things uh, of the people only relationship, but there's. No way. There's, there shouldn't be any any attempt to use this description or that description as a way of proving something being true or false. It's just that my life is full of God because I have faith in Him, and the faith has come not through looking at the evidence and logic, but it has come through personal prayer and the spiritual means. So I think you're right in your viewpoint, and I'm right in my viewpoint because we have different. We come in it from different ways. I think that you would have to concede everything that I just said about well-intentioned people working hard to make the, you know, the church relevant in people's lives and working hard to be good and so forth. You would have to concede everything I just said and then go one step for, uh, further and add a God to what I just said. But okay. I think you okay. would have to okay. concede that what I said about well-intentioned people is actually sufficient to explain everything about the church and, and, and all the good things that the church is for, for people when you know in the situations where it is a good a good influence. I think you would have to admit that that well intentioned people are sufficient to explain all of the good that you can attribute in the church. And therefore if you do admit that that, that well intentioned people are sufficient for that then tacking God on top of it, it really is an act of faith, but moreover, it's actually irrelevant or it's superfluous. That God is no longer needed when you can adjust, when you can explain everything just by well-intentioned people. But I think you're right, Seth, that everything, the, the, the examples that we've given can be explained in terms of well-intentioned people, and that you're right, that is what has happened. The question of God comes in, why are those people well-intentioned? Again, it depends on the individual, of course, and the years of history of those people. But I look upon the influence of God as being a major factor in why those people are who they are today. God has created opportunities for them to learn and to grow. But again, 
I can't prove this one way or the other way because it's a matter of faith. And faith is something that we can have in our own personal life, but it's not something that we can prove through logic and through research and so forth. Sure. Okay, well. My, my automobile accident six years ago when I was in an induced coma for three weeks and twice my family was called in because the doctors didn't think I would make it through the night is another example to you I recovered because of the, the technology involved, the skills of the doctors, and so forth. And from my viewpoint, is that I, I, I survived because of the technology involved and the skills of the doctor, and because of the influence of God in providing that technology through the history of you know, the Industrial Revolution and so forth, and through the training, through providing opportunities for these individual people to become trained as, as doctors and to have the experience that they have had. So that's a, 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 that's a very similar parallel to the one that you gave, that you can look at it from your viewpoint and have well-intentioned people. I can look at it from my viewpoint and have well-intentioned people plus the influence of God working behind the scenes. But again, this goes back to faith, and it can't be proved by logic or, or research. Okay, so so check this out though. Okay, I mean we go back to the to the Bible and the New Testament, and there's a blind man, and Jesus uh, spits in the dirt, and then reaches down and picks up like the dirt that was sticking to his spit and kind of rubs it around and makes a mud. And uh-huh. puts this puts this spitty mud on this this dude's eyes, and bam, he's healed, and now he sees. Right now, okay. fast forward to eighteen, you know. 40 or whatever the date was and there's like the malaria that's going on in the church and everyone's sick and like Joseph Smith is like lying in his tent you know on his you know as sick as a dog and everybody else and what does he do he sends out that um, I'm sure you know the story right he sends out like a handkerchief or something that he had blessed and the handkerchief was going to go around and whoever you know I don't know if it was like touch the handkerchief or whatever would be healed Okay, there's the story and, and, and how it worked. You know, Mormons claimed that people who came in contact with that blessed handkerchief were, were healed, right? So in the old days, we had these truly miraculous, like, you know, almost, I guess people would say magical type of healings, right? You know, spitty mud rubbed by Jesus onto someone's eyes that heals them, or like a blessed handkerchief. And your version of God's miraculous intervention is that God provided for the rise of science, you know, probably like starting with the Enlightenment and so forth, that culminated in complex machinery and doctors who understood the germ theory of disease and who understood the development of, of, of antibiotics and drugs that were able to control your blood pressure and, and machines to oxygenate your blood and machines to ventilate your body and, and, and all the other technologies that were rigged up to you in order to keep you alive during that period. And I remember, I mean, you were, you had a tube going down your throat and, and you weren't doing anything on your own. They were doing everything for you. And to you, that's the miracle right there is the technology. That's sort of like the muddy spit right there or the spitty mud. The spitty mud of today is doctors who actually know what they're doing and technology that's designed to, to, to save people. I mean, do, do you see how it's, it's, it's a bit of a, a bit of a letdown because, you know, I, I see that as just sort of like an ad hoc apologetic. You look around and say, okay, well, we're not making spit into mud and rubbing it on people's eyes anymore. 
And we do have this technology that is fairly effective in keeping people alive in situations where they previously would have died. Okay, these are the facts. Now, how am I going to reinterpret my belief system in order to accommodate these facts? I see that as a total like post hoc kind of uh, kind of kind of something that the apologists are forced into. Can you justify your attitude about that other than in a post hoc sort of way? It's it's true, Seth, that because we live in a, a technological society which they didn't have in the in the biblical days. We live in a society where technology exists today, uh, medical training exists, and so forth. That many of the health problems are cured through the application of this technology and, and the doctor's skills and so forth. But that does not imply that these more miraculous uh, putting mud on, uh, metaphorically putting mud on the the person, that those type of miraculous healings don't occur anymore. They do. At least people claim in, in their own lives that they have occurred. Whether the people are telling the truth or fabricating is something that we, we could debate. But I don't know because that's just the story that they tell. Well, so, it's just, so it's just my, tales. I mean, everybody knows well, that, that you know their cousins, brothers, uncles, dad, you know, blessed a guy on his mission and he came back to life or something. But you can never actually find where this really happened under circumstances where you know a proper documentation of this can be made so that it's so that it's actually credible. You see, and, and like, and, and here's an, and, and, and well, you know, hang on a second, I'll, I'll pause and you can respond to that, but let me throw this additional thing in there for you. We've got a state, like, that's like probably what, 50% or, you know, 35 or 40% like active Mormons in Utah. You get this whole Mormon corridor here in uh, Idaho and Arizona and so forth. You've got all these priesthood holders who are called in to bless everybody. You know, you get sick with, you know, whatever, you get a tummy ache, bam, call the elders, come over and, and bless somebody, you would think that if there was like a statistical improvement in people's odds having been blessed through the Mormon priesthood over not, that people like the CDC and stuff like that would be all over it, and this would be like big news. Hey, guess what? In, in, in Utah, people are surviving things at a higher rate than the, than the normal population, than the non-LDS population. Why do you suppose that is? Oh well, it's because they're they're being prayed over by the Mormon elders. They're being blessed by the power of God, the Creator of the whole universe. Well, guess what? I don't think that there's any evidence whatsoever that people blessed by the Mormon elders are surviving and recovering from things at at a statistically significant rate better than anybody else. In other words, I don't think it is the the mud on the eyes or the pre priesthood blessings or anything else. It's you know. Like I said, the more you know, where's that that story where Elder Iring or somebody told in a recent conference about going into you know like the emergency room, and like the doctor was scolding him because he was going to reach in under like the oxygen tent or something like that and bless someone, and then Elder Iring ends with and the person survived, as if we are supposed to interpret from that that they that they survived because of his blessing, and it's like, duh, they were in a, in the friggin' intensive care unit in an oxygen tent with doctors hovering over over him. Constantly. I've heard stories of people relating that either themselves or their parents had were had a child or somebody was was ill and a recovery occurred very, very quickly. Were there records taken of that to to compile the statistics that you were seeking? I don't know, probably not. I think this could be documented if 
But the, if we had the, the, had the if we had the time to go back and interview people, you could get some documentation. But I think that yeah, these but is this really a one-time thing? I mean, there's there's six million what like thirteen million Mormons today, of which maybe half are active. We probably have like thousands of blessings per day on an ongoing basis. The Mormon priesthood isn't just about what somebody forty years ago did on their mission. It's supposed to be about every single day. So even if you have an anecdote that you think might possibly kind of sort of be able to be verified if you could find out who it was and if you could go back and talk to people, I, I want to say that it shouldn't. we shouldn't be looking for one-time events. If this stuff is real, this stuff should be happening all the time. I mean, today, tomorrow, next week, next year. Let's take my accident as an example of this. I was in intensive care for three weeks, induced coma. A lot of technology was involved, a lot of medical skills and so forth were involved. And I agreed that those things were, were involved. And I attribute my recovery to the use of those things. But at the same time, I have faith that God was there watching over all of this process. And I would say, Seth, that there's no way that you can deny that God wasn't there. I mean, there's no way you can prove that God wasn't there. I can't prove that he was there, and you can't prove that he wasn't there. And so this takes us back to the idea of faith. I have faith in God that he was there. You have no faith in God, and so you say he wasn't there. But you can't right. prove well, it one way. I can't prove it the other way. Sure. I mean, I don't need to prove that he – I don't and need to prove it one way or the other, and, and the other, I don't claim other, that I can. I just don't the other, think there's any any evidence that, that, that he was there, and I don't think there's any real good reason to believe that he was there. Evidence or no, I just don't see – you know – Where's where's the 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 compelling reason to believe, other other than sort of wishful thinking or or something like that? It sounds to me, Seth, like, like you're saying that there's no compelling reason for me to have faith in God. Well, uh, that you're right. Uh, I do think well, there's no compelling reason for you to have faith. That's in the God. whole nature. That's the whole nature of faith. Faith is a personal belief in whatever the object of the faith is, but it's a personal belief. It's not something that can be necessarily proven through logic or through research or through evidence, but it's a personal belief that a person has developed for whatever reason. And yeah. people have faith because they feel that it enriches their life. People don't have faith because they feel that it's, it's illogical and there's no need for it. One of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I don't remember if it was Dennett, uh, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, which one of them? I don't remember. He, he once characterized faith as the license people uh, give themselves to believe things which are otherwise unbelievable or undeserving of, of, of belief. You know, so you get something that it just really doesn't deserve to be believed, but if you can call it faith, then you can justify believing anything you want. And naturally, people have things that they want to believe in, so they invoke faith and drive on. It's, it's, I'm just guessing that when he said that it's undeserving of, of faith. That's not an exact at, quote, by the way. I don't remember. Well, that's fine. Uh, whether he said He's, it was undeserving. If, if he says it's undeserving or something equivalent of that, of undeserving of faith, he's looking at this situation from his viewpoint, that from the viewpoint of evidence or logic, that there's no need for, there's no reason, and there's no need for having faith. That's fine. That's his viewpoint. I have faith in God because I believe that my. I have experienced and learned from my own experiences that I have more mean, I have meaning to my life through my belief in God that I wouldn't have without that belief in God. 
I can't explain this clearly. I can't prove it through logic or through evidence. That's just how, that's just my attitude towards it is that my life is richer and fuller because of my belief in God. And you can disagree and you can, but you have to disagree in the context of your life. And I agree. I, this is my viewpoint from the context sure. of my life. I mean, if you argue that your life is richer and, 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 and better off because of your belief in God, well, obviously I can't contradict you and say, no, it isn't. I mean, no, your life is not richer because of that. I mean, I don't believe that it is, but, but I, I can't tell you, you, you know, how you evaluate your life because in the end that's your own personal evaluation. Um, I'd like to ask you a question. Do you, are you familiar with the, uh, the the story of the luminiferous ether? I don't recognize it by that name. Explain what it is. Okay, so scientists used to believe that, that pervading all of space, there was this substance, like this invisible substance called the luminiferous ether. The purpose of that was to act as the medium through which electromagnetic waves could be propagated. Now, was there any evidence for the ether? No. This was a belief that had come about because scientists thought at the time that if you have a wave, there must be a medium through which the wave is propagated. Like, think about sound waves for a moment, right? You have sound waves which are propagated through the air. Um, or you throw a pebble in the water and, like, ripples go out, you know, as this, like, energy from the, the, the rock entering the waters, like propagated outward in these waves. Well, right. you know, with all these earthly examples of waves being propagated in a medium, it just made sense that there must be a luminiferous ether in order to propagate electromagnetic waves. Well, that I see is very similar to God beliefs. Okay, you have a certain set of things which need to be explained. People say, well, there must be a God to explain this, and, you know... Bam, we have God beliefs. Well, let's look at what happened next. Michelson and Morley did their experiments and showed that there was no good evidence for the luminiferous ether. Now, did they convince everybody? Probably not. Okay. But the mathematics and the physics of electromagnetic waves and how collapsing electric fields would stimulate magnetic fields, which would then collapse and stimulate the electric fields back, and, and it would just be the cycle of electric, magnetic, electric, magnetic. That's why they call it an electromagnetic wave that were capable of propagating themselves in a vacuum. And, and once it became clear to the physicists that, the, the, that there was simply no need for the ether at all, contrary to what they had assumed, guess what? Bam. Nobody believes in the ether anymore. You know, I mean, you get some apologists that want to, want to point out this former scientific belief in the ether as, as somehow proving that science sometimes gets it wrong. And I say, bring it on, because not only does this show that scientists sometimes get it wrong in their assumptions, I think it's a, it's a perfect story of scientific redemption, because as the evidence came in that not only was there probably not an ether, but there didn't need to be one, scientists just dropped the belief. And, and today, nobody believes in the luminiferous ether, because why should they? There's no evidence for it, and, and, and it's not needed to explain the propagation of, of the very waves that it was speculated to exist for. Now, what does religion do? They make grand pronouncements and assumptions, and then science comes along and disproves some of these things, and do they step back and say, well, maybe we were wrong? No. <laughs> then they, they, then what, they, what, what religionists do is they run for the hills of faith and, and hold it up and say, nope, this, 
this is faith. We're just going to keep believing this anyway, even if there's no good reason for it. That's why they call it faith, because there's no good evidence for it. And faith is such a great thing, you know, that, that, that it's actually a virtue to believe things, you know, that aren't necessary and for which there's no good evidence. That's what faith is all about. I think faith is such an overrated concept because I, I agree. This is the license believers write themselves to justify believing things that, that really are un, undeserving of, uh, of our belief. I, I have no, nothing to say concerning that, Seth. Again, because belief or faith and belief or belief, faith. Faith is a personal thing that cannot be proven by evidence, cannot be proven by logic, cannot be proved by things that scientists can see, philosophers can see. But faith is an individual thing, and if you don't, if you choose to not have faith and that you see no need for faith in your life, that's fine. Go with it. I believe that faith is important to me, and that's fine for me. I'll go with it. Okay. I, I've made no claims. I've tried to explain from the beginning several times that faith is not something that can be proven through logic and through evidence. It's a sure. personal belief. Okay. I'll let you have the last word on that. I wanted to ask some, some specific questions about things that Mormons either believe today or, or have believed in the past, uh, which I think – you know, conflict with science and so forth and, and, and kind of get your reaction from it. Uh, this is sort of where the apologetic rubber meets the road. You've already kind of addressed uh, scriptural literalism um, and your belief that the scriptures contain a lot which is metaphorical. I would like to ask where in the Bible or in the other scriptures that we have does it say that these things are metaphorical or give people license to view them as metaphorical because I um, once again let me just say that I think that this whole viewing the scriptures as metaphorical thing is another one of these post hoc defenses which has only been adopted by people in this in this modern day because or in reaction to the fact that science has come along and blown the literal interpretation of the scriptures out of the water and so in order to salvage belief at all they have to recast some of this stuff as metaphorical. So, once again, the question is, where in the scriptures does it justify not taking the scriptures themselves at face value? Probably nowhere in the scriptures does it explain that this is a metaphor or this isn't a metaphor. The same answer could be given towards literalism. Where in the scriptures does it state that we should interpret things literally? Nowhere. We have to interpret the scriptures, I think, in terms of the culture of the people who wrote the scriptures. And the ancient Hebrews thought about metaphors, I think, a lot more than they thought about literalism. But I can't explain that because it's just a, a belief that I don't really haven't really carried through the research to substantiate that. But whether you interpret the scriptures literally or whether you interpret them metaphorically and you know, in combinations of each, it really, to me, goes back to the culture of the people. And what did the people mean when they wrote these things. There's no more reason to have a literal interpretation than there is to have a metaphorical interpretation of the scriptures. I'm not sure I can agree about that. You know, it seems like I recall reading in the New Testament, you know, quotations of, of Jesus talking about like the flood of Noah, for instance, referencing the flood of Noah. So Jesus apparently believed that the flood of Noah really happened. 
and that the people that he was talking to, you know, were obviously familiar with the story, and they too uh, took it as something that was literal. The descent well, of the I, Israelites from, from Abraham, you know, have we not Abraham to our father? And Jesus says, you know, of these stones, God can make sons unto Abraham and so forth. They seem to take that whole Abrahamic covenant and promise and, and the idea that, the, that that was the promised land that they've been led into and so forth. Uh, they took that seriously and believed it as literally true. That's really Seth, your interpretation. If a person relates, or you know, if a person relates a metaphor, how do we know if it's if he's speaking metaphorically, or how do we know if he's speaking literally? We don't really, unless he tells us in plain words, or unless his culture is based upon one or the other. Jesus so, could relate. Jesus, not really Jesus relating, but it was the the manuscripts that are hundreds of years old by the time they were canonized relate a story which they claim comes from Jesus and on a face value you might think of that as a literal story but at face value it could also be a metaphor because we don't know what Jesus really intended so for every Jesus? I think for if give me all of the article give me all of the arguments that you want that the scriptures should be interpreted literally and I can apply those same arguments towards that the scriptures should be interpreted metaphorically. So was Jesus just speaking as a man then? <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Because like the, you know, the apologist wall will say, oh, Joseph Smith was just speaking as a man when he said, you know, the Adam on Diamond was the Garden of Eden. Or, you know, he was just a man. He wasn't speaking as someone with actual revealed knowledge given to him by supernatural beings, which he had, you know, seen with his and conversed with uh, physically. You know when he <laughs> when he said such and such. You know that you always get this uh, this this excuse that so and so was just speaking as a man. You, you name it. All the prophets, most of the apostles, between the founding of the church and today, have said things which have 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 been disproven. And in every case, the 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 excuse from the apologist is, oh, he was just speaking as a man. Okay, so let me ask you this: if if the scripture, if you have a license to accept that the scriptures are metaphorical or contain a lot of metaphor, and that there's no clear guide in the scriptures to what is metaphor and what isn't, then where's the line in the sand? I guess you would have to say that Jesus really did exist, and that Jesus isn't a metaphor, right? I would say that a lot of historians may not say that. Well, maybe the historians, but not the LDS ones. I mean, as far as LDS claims go, Jesus has to actually have exist, okay. right? And he has to actually have died for our sins, and he has to actually have been resurrected, and and, and gone up to heaven, and, and and all that other stuff, right? Okay. 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 So. What I want to know, though, is if you're free to explain away like the flood of Noah or like the Garden of Eden as, as just a metaphor, then why isn't the atonement just a metaphor? That's a good question. I don't really have a good answer for that, I guess. Right. And I, I guess – go ahead. I remember as a missionary in West Virginia many years ago, I was talking with a Methodist minister about the Bible – and we had, at that time, I was taking a very little interpretation of everything in the Bible, pretty much. And he explained to me that a lot of the things he felt were symbolical or metaphorical, not literal. But well, the, Bible, I, the Bible itself doesn't give any really clear-cut, line-in-the-sand indication of what is a metaphor and what is literal. All we, all we really, I feel all we really have to go back on is the, the culture of the people. 
I, I think there's a couple ways you can interpret this. Uh, one is the cynical way, which is the, the way that I uh, take it with, which is, well, you know, of course the Bible doesn't say which parts are metaphorical and which parts are literal. That's because the people who wrote, the, you know, the, the various scriptures that are contained in the Bible, they thought that they were given, you know, actual truth, actual real historical truth. And that we only came up with this idea that the scriptures were metaphorical after the fact to kind of get us out of a jam when our holy scriptures, you know, the word of God and so forth is actually shown to contain things that aren't true. So, I mean, it's a total post hoc justification. That's the cynical well, point of view. I the guess the, the, the faithful point of view is, well, you know, God just expected that you would have to have a PhD in Near Eastern studies if you want to have a prayer of properly interpreting the scriptures. And I just say, well, obviously that is kind of absurd. The, uh, the idea in Joseph Smith's time and before him and during the Reformation that the scriptures should be interpreted literally came down from the culture of the people. It wasn't necessarily what the original people believed. We don't really know what the original people believed because we don't have original uh, manuscripts. All we have is a copy of a copy of a copy of the manuscripts which gets us into the idea of the Bible being the Word of God as far as it's translated correctly. But I feel, and again, this is a, just a very, very general statement, that the only, thing, the only guideline that we really have as to what is metaphorical and what is literal would be the, the culture of the people. I would say but this, that... You're... But this is so ambiguous that it doesn't really help us that much. No, it doesn't. I, I would say that the only guideline you have as to what is literal and what is metaphorical is science. And the, the claims that have proven to be testable against the discoveries of science in these you know, latter days, uh, those claims are the ones that are metaphorical. And the claims like Jesus was resurrected or Jesus died for our sins, which are obviously not testable by science, well, those are the literal ones. I mean, doesn't it just seem like it's, it's way too convenient that – we get to write off as metaphorical all the all the things that are disproven, knowing full well that that things like Jesus' resurrection aren't testable. And so we can hold on to those for dear life and say, Oh yeah, that really happened. This didn't happen over here, but this did. Oh, what's the what's the difference between the two? Oh, well one's testable and one isn't. Doesn't that just seem a little too convenient to you? It's not a question that this didn't happen over here. It's a question that this happened over here. But in what form did it happen? The creation of the earth, did it happen on the literal creation of, of 24 days, or excuse me, six days, 24 hours each, or did it happen in some other way? like to read for you a scripture okay I, I have it brought up here on the screen this is not an ambush you should be pretty familiar with with the the mormon theology around this so 
Help them get, help them get an ambushed. <laughs> He's getting ambushed. Yeah. The, the, the apostate son has, has got this, uh, this, yeah, he's going to snipe you. Okay, this is Second Nephi chapter 2, verse 22. And now behold, if Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen, but he would have remained in the Garden of Eden. And all things which were created must have remained in the same state in which they were after they were created, and they must have remained forever and had no end. Now, this is, this, this is part of the scriptural basis for the Mormon belief that there was no death and no procreation or no anything else um, in the Garden of Eden uh, before the fall of Adam. Okay, this is written in the Book of Mormon right. as, as, if, as if this was a real thing. How do you harmonize this Mormon belief that there was the Garden of Eden and nothing died or was corruptible or reproduced or anything else in the world i mean it actually says all things okay that that none of the that, that nothing died or reproduced until after adam's fall how do you reconcile that with the modern you know so scientific discovery that things have been living and dying on earth for you know a couple four billion point, years 4.8 billion years oh i mean the earth existed for that long things have only lived for a oh, couple billion of those years that, you're right that's right okay yeah, from this, from the viewpoint, first of all, let's, let me mention that not all Mormons say that there was no death before the fall. In fact, most of the Mormons that I've talked with about evolution, they're, in, they're incorrect in this, I think, but they say that there was death before the fall, otherwise, because evolution and the history of the earth shows us that there was death before the fall. But let's go back and look at it from the viewpoint of the scriptures. We have a scriptural account of the earth being created physically but an earth that was celestial in the sense that it had no death. And whether it's literal or whether it's metaphor is a question that can't really be answered explicitly. Eve partook of the fruit, then Adam partook of the fruit, and through their actions, the earth became mortal. Well, evolution and the history of the earth is 2.7 billion years of life on the earth pertains to the physical earth. It does not pertain to this earlier creation of the uh, earth without death. So after Adam and Eve partook of their fruit, then the earth became mortal. And that's when, at the beginning of that point, is when the, uh, the using the viewpoint of science, the Big Bang would occur and, and so whatever happened. What and the, the Big two Bang? The 2.8 billion years of life. It was the the, the mortal earth. Yeah, talking about the Big Bang. Just to disambiguate here, you're you're talking about like the creation of the earth, not like the creation of the whole universe, right? Okay. You're not it, saying it, that Adam and Eve existed and fell in order to cause the Big Bang to happen, right? Yeah, I think you really oh, meant that to cause yeah, yeah the existence you're, you're, of life on Earth or something. Okay. Yeah, I, I use the term Big Bang as sort of a general expression that it implied the whole universe and not, which is like you said. Yeah. I, didn't, I don't want to get into that, but my point is that the from the viewpoint of the scriptures, this is again is only my interpretation. It's not necessarily Mormon doctrine from the church, or many Mormons may not agree with this. But from my viewpoint, as I understand the scriptures and understand science, the earth was created without death in a celestial form of having no is more as a physical earth, physical matter, but had no death. Adam and Eve made their decision to have the earth become mortal and they become mortal and at that point in time the earth then was changed to a mortal earth and it was through evolution 
and through science that we have an, an understanding of this change that occurred after Adam and Eve partook of the fruit. Okay. So it, it's, it's false, I think, to try and take s studies of science and apply them before the time when Adam and Eve partook of this fruit. Well, whether okay. So, so whether that's metaphorical, literal is another question. I think this is actually what you had written in your little um, book that you had written before, wasn't it? This idea that Adam and Eve existed, fell, and then maybe went into some kind of like suspended animation for like a couple of billion years or something until evolution had caught up with where they had been in the Garden of Eden. And then we're sort of like woken up and unleashed back into the world that was ready for them. Is that is that sort of well? The, the suspended animation. that correctly? Uh, almost, not quite. The suspended animation part is just your interpretation or your how you would express it. I, in the book, I point out that this is a book which is called One Mormon's uh, what's it called? One Mormon's belief. No, anyway, I can't remember the title, but it's just it's strictly my own feelings about uh, science and religion. Yeah. Anyway, it, se it seemed to me it was uh, like your version of Evidences and Reconciliations, if you recall that old book written by yeah. Talmadge uh, or whoever it was. It was Woodso. It was Talmadge, it was Woodso, yeah. That was like your but, version of Evidences and Reconciliations, right? This was like you're, you're saying, okay, here's a conflict, here's a scenario I think could resolve the conflict. Isn't that what, what, what that book was? Basically, uh, one chapter of the book, yes. Basically, Adam and Eve made their decision. The earth became mortal. And from the viewpoint of, from the earth in earth time and earth years, we had 2.7 billion. Well, we really had 4.8 billion years for the life of the earth is, the I think, the number that scientists give currently. But we don't know how that 4.8 billion years in terms of years or days translates into the whatever time that... Uh, Adam and Eve had as eternal beings with no death. So okay. this is—I just wanted to get away from the idea of having suspended animation for two billion years and then they get woke up again. Well, we okay, but let's let's be explicit. Right, in, the, in, the, in, in the book, I portray—I say that yes, in terms of Earth years, that took a long, long time for evolution and the Earth to be developed as science gives us the uh, understanding of it. But from the viewpoint of an Adam and Eve, it probably was or likely was a very short time. Because they were in an eternal sphere, not in a mortal sphere, and their rec their recollection of time would be based on an e eternal uh, fact, eternal system versus a mortal system. Okay, can we back up for just one second, though? I, okay. I kind of I feel the need to kind of interject a little bit of actual science into this for, into this conversation for just a moment, and I don't mean that in an offensive way. I know that sounded bad just now, but that's not what I mean. Um, science postulates that the Earth was in a state where no life existed on Earth, but at some point in the last, you know, couple billion years or whatever, but the, the conditions for life were there. In other words, there were enough nutrients around, the, the, the building blocks that would become life were all there and just like waiting for the first life forms or the first replicating molecules or whatever, you know, whatever was the product of that of that abiogenesis, which which stuck, which is you know the creation of life from from no life. So uh, let's say let's call it a cell, and I don't know if it was a replicating molecule or what, but let's just say that the first life form was a cell, and we'll just say okay, you know, it might not have been an actual cell, but let's not be pedantic. For our sure. purposes, it was a cell, right? Okay. So you okay. have this this Earth, which is 
It's got all the conditions that could support life if life existed. And we know that that's true because as soon as life came about, it didn't just die off. It actually took, right? So obviously the conditions that were there to support it had to be there. So we have this earth that's ready to receive life, but there was no life there. Then the first cell comes about and manages to survive, you know, so that so that we get more cells. Um, I guess to be more correct, we, we couldn't say necessarily the first cell came about. The first cell came about that actually survived. Okay, I mean, in theory, we could have had multiple cells come about and die, and so we just didn't descend from them. But the, right. the first cell that came about and actually continued to survive to to this, you know, as a, as our first ancestor, um, it comes about, and there's this whole earth with all this land and all these nutrients and all this water and carbon dioxide and just whatever the, you know, the chemical composition was of the earth, there was no life except for that cell. And from that, all other life forms have developed. So it was just a cell and then it was like a slime and then it was, you know, who knows what. And then uh-huh. it was a fish, you know, sea sponges, mollusks, whatever. And then the fish crawled out of water and just all this whole, like, story of of all the different life forms that came from that but it was nothing but a cell but in the garden of eden we have adam and eve as human beings okay we have fruit we have all the animals you know the uh the story as told in the temple and in the book of genesis and i think in the price and so forth describes you know the lions the tigers the bears oh my and so forth and you know the elephants whatever they describe all these animals that were there. Now, you're saying that all of these things really did exist, but none of them were mortal, as the Mormon scriptures say. And then no, Adam and not, Eve fell. That's not what I said. And then the earth sort of reverts to a situation where there's nothing but this single cell that you accept as part of this history of the earth according to evolution and abiogenesis. So where's the room in this story for a Garden of Eden with plants and animals and human beings and so forth to exist and then to not exist and come about again through evolution after the fall. I, I, I just don't see how you're I, – I don't see how you're really harmonizing the Mormon scriptures with the, the evidence that we have through science. From the viewpoint of the scriptures, the earth existed, and where they had all of these animals is a question that I, I don't really know. Well, I mean, but the, it says, the scriptures say that, that there was all these animals. But is that I mean, literal or is that a metaphor? Well, I mean, they even describe, you know, the, the metaphorical day of creation that each thing came about. You know, there was one day where the plants came about and one day where the animals and the fish and the fowls and, and you know, the beasts, that creepy crawly and all that other stuff. I mean, the scriptures even go into detail about the order in which these things came about, biologically speaking. So I don't see where you can, you can really justify saying that all these things were just metaphorical and didn't really exist. Well, the scriptures even say the order in which they came about. What, what, what kind of a metaphor is that? It seems like a claim of, you know, natural history to me. Yeah, I just said what I said because I didn't want to get off on a tangent with these animals. Which okay, was, but, okay, so what you're well, saying is it's possible that the animals didn't even exist. Well, and what about the plants? Let me strike that comment because it's getting us off on this tangent. Let's just talk about the earth as being created uh, without death and not worry about the details. From the viewpoint of the scriptures, well, I, think the, the I think the devil is in the details here. I mean, evo- evolution, abiogenesis and evolution postulates a very humble origin of like a very, like a, like a cell. I'm calling it, you know, 
a cell or a replicating molecule, then leading to all the forms of life we have now. And the Garden of Eden story, which you say preceded that, had animals and plants and human beings. Unless everything was just a metaphor, in which case, really, the story is pretty useless because it doesn't really tell us anything. Oh, and, and, and the devil wasn't really a talking snake, and Adam, you know, Eve didn't really eat a piece of fruit. It was all just a metaphor for something else that we don't know. I mean, it gets to a point where if you if you write off everything as a metaphor, then the whole enterprise is just absurd. If Well, that's a, a separate issue. If you write off everything as a metaphor – then you have to look at what is the metaphor trying to teach, and you focus upon that. The what metaphor, indeed. I think, the, the earth, what's, a, what's important to me from the spiritual viewpoint is that Adam and Eve were given the chance. They had to make a decision whether they would remain immortal without death, but also not, not capable of having children, or whether they would allow themselves to be changed into a mortal condition and the earth to be changed with them into a mortal condition so that they could have children and reproduce and go through all of the trials and temptations of opposites and so forth of mortality. So to me, the important thing of a metaphor is not the metaphor itself, or the important thing of literal interpretation is not the interpretation itself, but what is the basic concept or principle that those things are trying to teach. But going back to the scriptures, we have an earth that was created physically in terms of matter, but I, won't, I don't want to call it a resurrection, resurrected matter, but it was sort of a parallel to that because it had no, no death. Then the earth was changed from this condition of no death to a condition of mortality. And everything that you want to say about science, scientists' understanding of the earth, with this, you know, the one cell, the slime and, and so forth, the fish walking onto the land, all of those things only pertain to the existence after this, what the scripture referred to as the fall of Adam, this change from an immortal to a mortal earth. And scientists can say nothing about the condition of the creation earlier than that point in time, earlier than the fall. This, uh, no, I think they can. I, I don't see where you can say that. I mean, they talk about, you know, at one point in time, our universe, our solar system was probably just a gigantic cloud of gas and dust. Right, you're talking, you're, caused, Seth, Seth. You're talking about the physical solar system, which right. didn't happen until after Adam and Eve made their decision. The, what the solar the, system didn't exist before Adam and Eve fell. Not, I mean, uh, we're talking not, about the Earth. Not, I mean, I'm the, talking about a, I'm talking about a mortal solar system and a mortal Earth did not exist until after they made their decision, and the immortal Earth, the Earth without death, was changed to become a mortal Earth. So there's no there's no way wow. scientists have no way of getting knowledge of this immortal Earth. You know, it's you just know as the if there's a blank is? wall, they can't go past that blank wall with their research. This is just so, turtles all the way down, and 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 it just seems like you're going further and further back in time. If I understood you correctly, the the, the solar system itself didn't exist before Adam and El, Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. Well, scientists understand that the solar system must have formed by the collapse of a cloud of dust and gas um, into the sun at the center and, you know, slow accretion or even rapid accretion of dust and gas and so forth to result in all the planets that we have. So you're, you're, you're saying that the Earth didn't even exist until after Adam and Eve made this decision and fell 
and as, then as, as, the cloud as of a, dust collapsed, and the Earth accreted out of dust. That's right. As we're talking now about a mortal Earth that exists, think of, you've got to keep in mind that from this viewpoint that I'm portraying, from my interpretation of the scriptures, we have an immortal Earth which did exist, and a mortal Earth which did not exist until, as the scriptures say, the Earth was changed and became mortal through the decision that Adam and Eve made in the garden. See, uh, this this really so, points out the difference that, that between the two of us, because you and I both know that that it, that you and I both know that you can explain the, the the solar system entirely from scientific point of view, and all this God stuff is just tacked on because you're a you know seventy uh, well almost seventy five well no, you are seventy five right you're seventy five this year right. Right. 1935. So you're a 75-year-old Mormon who really has no alternative but to keep believing, and so you have to tack on this God stuff, right? So Adam and Eve exist on a pre-mortal Earth, and then they fall, and bam, in the blink of an eye, we've got this void of space with a, a giant cloud of gas and dust, which collapses into our solar system, and the sun comes into existence, and then the Earth accretes um, in this the same sort of plane with all these other planets out of gas and dust and so forth and is this gigantic ball of lava and slowly cools down for a couple billion years and accumulates um, chemicals and, 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 and elements from asteroids and from the gas that we were still floating around in in the, in the solar system. And, and then this, this cell appears in this chemical soup that was able to support it and bam, two and a half billion years later, here we are. And, and all of that happened after Adam and Eve fell, and then we didn't see human beings on Earth again until, you know, 100,000 years ago or so. You see what I'm saying? You're, ta you're tacking on a bunch of sort of like just hand-waving exercises, like theological hand-waving exercises onto real science and saying that your science and religion don't disagree with each other. Well, no, they don't, because your religion, your your religious understanding and explanation of this is just tacked on to the science. I, mean, I can't, well, I can't prove it, that an immortal Earth didn't exist, which then disappeared after Adam and Eve decided to eat the fruit or whatever the metaphor was, decided to fall, and then bam, the solar system came into 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 existence. I can't, I can't obviously can't contradict that. <laughs> But, but but there's no reason to believe it unless you happen to be a 75-year-old Mormon who really has no alternative but to, you know, somehow excuse away the the claims of its of your apostles and prophets. Let me explain that last part in my words. There's no reason to believe it unless you're a person who has faith and has chosen to follow that faith in accepting the scriptures as a mainstay of your life because that's the story that the scriptures teach. Right. You, can dis you, can, you can discount that because you don't believe in the scriptures. I do believe in the scriptures and so I accept it. But the scriptures teach that there was an immortal earth without death and that Adam and Eve made the decision and that it was changed and at that point the earth became mortal and that is all of this all of the research and descriptions from science pertain to that mortal phase not earlier to the immortal phase. Okay, so I'll, I'll give you the last word on that. Um, I want to, to kind of make a somewhat related point and then, and then discuss um, some other stuff. Um, you see in the scriptures a bunch of metaphors which God gave us, and if he's only going to give us a little bit, I mean, we've got the creator of the entire universe here. He knows an awful lot of things that we would like to know. 
he had to be very picky and choosy if all we have is the Bible and the Book of Mormon and and like that parchment from Moses that Joseph Smith never actually got his hands on but was somehow able to translate. Okay, and the Book of Abraham. Okay, so God was very, very choosy about what he chose to give us as his word. And this is what we get. You know, uh, uh, the Tower of Babel, Noah's Ark, you know, Adam and Eve, which, you know, if you ask most Mormons, means the earth is a few thousand years old, or maybe it's older than that, but God used evolution, and then some hand-waving goes on, and then you still get the Garden of Eden. And then you get you, who got this sort of view of the Garden of Eden that, that, that must have happened before the solar system even came into being, and so forth. I mean, nobody seems to know what's going on here, and this is the best God could do. Well, as, as Sam Harris would like to point out in his talks, every one of us, both of us, could take 30 seconds and improve upon the Bible as Scripture. I mean, how about this? How about God comes up with some Scriptures and says, here's commandment number one, wash your hands before you eat. Rule number two, boil your water. Number three, <laughs> sterilize your tools before you cut into each other's bodies and, and perform the, the primitive surgeries. Rule number four, be nice to people. You know, rule number five, uh, teach your children to, uh, to learn how to read and, and, uh, and, and, like, and, and become educated. And, you see what I'm saying? I mean, we could come up with an infinite number of ways to result in, 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 in knowledge from on high that these people wouldn't have known necessarily, which would have immeasurably improved their lives. And instead, we get talking snakes and, and Adam and Eve uh, eating fruit before the universe, you know, before, before the Big Bang or the solar system came into existence or whatever. Do you, do you at least understand why someone like me could look at that situation and say it is obviously absurd. It's obviously man-made. Not that you have to agree with me, but can you at least see the logic behind my conclusion? I, I do, Seth. This is why I've wanted to talk with you about this from time to time and why we're meeting this evening, because I, I can understand it to at least to a degree from your viewpoint that these things seem absurd, because you can you, you can create a, a, a almost like what to you is a complete picture of all of these things without the presence of God being there. I include the presence. It makes of God. perfect sense. That's I right. Can, exactly. I can come because, up with a situation that explains all of this away as just the creation of human beings, and it really leaves nothing unexplained. Whereas you come up with all this stuff that that includes God in the picture and leaves pretty much everything unexplained, and all the things that we thought were explained, we have to reinterpret as soon as science you know, comes up with a way to disprove all the previous interpretations. I believe that God, as I've mentioned several times, that I believe that God works through natural laws. And if you look at just the natural laws themselves, they will give a, a what seems to be a complete picture without God being there because there's no, you have, scientists have no knowledge, no way of getting knowledge about God directly. But they, they do have knowledge about they do have ways of getting knowledge about how the earth operates and the universe operates and the natural laws and so forth. Once I take the viewpoint that God works through natural laws, then I'm also recognizing that people can take the picture of, of the natural laws and remove that from God and leave God behind and not need God. And that's very logical and very reasonable for them to do that. In fact, if I didn't have faith in God, I would be right there with them doing that myself. When I read the scriptures, I look at the scriptures from one viewpoint, and that is why. 
why did God do this and why did he do that? I don't worry about the how because that is, a, I'll let the scientists tell me the how. It's this phrase we had at the very beginning of letting the scientists do science and they'll, the church will do the spiritual things. But I look at the, why, what is the, what is this, from the story of Genesis and the creation, what is the why of all of this? Why did God create the earth? Why did he put Adam and Eve in the garden? Why did he, uh, so forth, why, whatever the questions may be. Why did, why were the languages confounded? Why, why was the story of the Tower of Babel retained among the people of God confounding the languages? Why did these things happen? What is, this, what is the why of the, of the flood? I don't worry about the how because scientists will tell me the how, but I look at the why. Sure. And in all, so in all of these cases, the why is to teach the people to have faith and even though the Jews lost this knowledge, to teach them that Christ would come as the Redeemer and provide the atonement. The story of the Tower of Babel is a story of faith in God and following God. The story of the flood is a story of faith in God and following God. The story of the creation is of the earth being, being the home of God's children so that they could go through the experiences of mortality. And I don't, as, as, as I read the scriptures, I really don't worry about any of these hows anymore like I used to worry about. I'll, I go to scientists and I'll let them tell me the how. But I want to gain the why because this is something that scientists can't tell me is the why, but the scriptures can. Well, I, I don't think that the scriptures can, can tell us the whys any more than science can in a way that I you know, find believable. I find it kind of offensive that people should say, well, science is going to tell us the how, and religion is going to tell us the why. Or science is going to tell us, you know, whatever, and religion is going to tell us, you know, morality or what's right and wrong. I don't think that religion has a very good track record, frankly, um, of telling us what's right and wrong and what's morality. And, and, and particularly if you read the Old Testament, you know, I mean, you're supposed to be stoned for picking up sticks on the Sabbath or – you know, Israel was supposed to go in and slaughter the Midianites and the Amalekites and the whoever whatites. You know, anybody who was there when the Isra when the Israelites showed up was dead meat. And what does God say? Kill all the adults and of the of the children, kill all the male children. But if you find any virgin girls, you can keep them for yourselves. You know, I'll, that's just not. It's just not credible for religion to to give us these kinds of scriptures. And then tell us that they know the 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 wise and that they know right from wrong. I think I'm it's not... self-evidently clear that we are ethically much better as a civilization today than we were a hundred years ago, or two hundred years ago, or two thousand years ago, or four thousand years ago. And that doesn't mean that we have everything right, but I think that we have made an awful lot of progress in ethics, and I think that that is all. Not just despite, but I think, well, no, I think it is despite religion. I think it's despite religion. I, I, I don't think that we get really much of, of, of at all of our ethics from religion, and particularly not from the examples of our, you know, the past prophets. I'm not claiming that all religions will do the things that I've talked about, but I believe that, if I may use the phrase, true religion will. If all people followed the basic teachings of Christ, literally, if all people followed them, you'd have no wars, you'd have no crime. You'd have no investment. You'd have no savings. You'd have no thrift. You'd have no, um, no, you, you wouldn't have a home. 
because you would just give everything up and follow Jesus. You know, why take ye thought for the morrow? You know, consider the lilies of the field. Do they do anything? And yet, and look at how wonderfully they are clothed. I mean, Jesus was telling his followers to just drop what they were doing and follow him. If you read that and do it today, you're screwed. And I think it's pretty clear when you read the, the, the New Testament that if you take Jesus at, his, at, at the words that are written in his name in the New Testament, he either was mad or he really believed that the earth was about to come to an end. If you read what Jesus was saying to his followers, it only makes sense if he was either crazy or he actually thought the world was about to come to an end. And guess what? It's 2,000 years later and we're still going. What if the early saints had, had refused to invest or refused to build or refused to plant their crops because they were convinced that, that, that next month Jesus is coming back? We only have all the stuff in the state of Utah that the Mormons built up and all of the stuff that you have accomplished in your life because, you, because we didn't take Jesus seriously at his word and you went to college and you did take thought for the morrow and worked hard and, 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 and bought a house and paid it off. And the Mormons did come out and plant their crops and, and mine the rocks and, and, and build the temples and, and all this other stuff. They weren't following Jesus's word. They were assuming that Jesus wasn't going to come back. Jesus wasn't right speaking then. to them. You've got to just, you've got to understand Seth, that when Jesus like he told the, the lawyer to give up all of his stuff and to follow him. He wasn't saying that all people should do that. He was giving that as a, an example that people should follow him and give up their stuff. What did they give up? They give up their attitudes. They give up their uh, private hobbies, computer hobbies, uh, car hobbies, video game hobbies, whatever they may be, and focus upon the spiritual things of life. Jesus never told the Mormon pioneers to not to go to college. I was taught by my parents and I was taught by my church leaders to go to college. Right, because, because so you they can't, weren't you can't, reading the scriptures and following no, Jesus' example. Because we, well, we believe they were. You believe well, they no, were. I think they were following the example of the rest of the world, which is, you know, work hard, get an education, or at least sort of the Protestant, wor you know, world that was created well, here in the United States after, you know, there's no, the Puritans there's no and everybody else came over. There's nowhere, Seth, that you'll find in the scriptures that they say that we should not go to college. You've got to take the teachings of the scriptures, and through having letter, this is one advantage we feel of having latter-day revelation through prophets, is that they can tell us for our time what we should do, as they are spokesmen for God, in a, a general sense. Okay. You, you can't take that. You can't take word for word, a literal interpretation of the scriptures and apply it to every age and every group of people because the scriptures were intended for that, to be that broad. Okay. Uh, I'll, but this, is, this, this is why we have so many denominations within the Christian world is because people try to take the biblical scriptures that face value and apply them to the 21st or 20th and 21st centuries and we get thousands and thousands of interpretations and all of these churches exist. Okay, so I'll I'll let you have the final word on that. Uh, I've been I've been trying to um, buck the trend that both of us have noticed in our past conversations, where I tend to like try to monopolize the conversation and do most of the talking. So I I, I hope you're feeling, you know, like like you're being given an, an adequate hearing. And uh, I mean, do you feel that way? 
Yeah, I, I feel like getting... you've given me. I feel like you've given me a fair hearing, and you've paused and let me express myself. I've gone on for quite a time, and some sometimes. So I have. Sure. I have no. I have no complaints of how this uh, conversation is going. Okay. Well, I'll let you have the last word on what we were just saying. Let's segue into this. To this other. To this sort of related topic of prophetic fallibility. Okay. You quoted Joseph Smith earlier as saying that you know a prophet is only a prophet when he's acting like a prophet and so forth. I remember. Several years ago, you and I kind of having an argument um, over the phone, and I specifically remember you bringing that up, and I asked, okay, well then how do you know when the prophet is speaking as a prophet and when he's speaking as a man? And I would like to ask you that question again. How do we know that the prophet is speaking as a prophet? Earlier, I, I mentioned the General Authority who said that scientists will take care of the science and their purpose as leaders of the church is to provide for the spiritual growth of the people. So I believe that when a prophet is a, speaking as a prophet, he will be speaking about primarily about the atonement of Christ and the, benefit, the need that we have of the atonement and the benefits that the atonement can give to us and then things that can uh, go off on, you know, on the boundary of that. If he speaks about things that are not clearly explained, such as the creation of the earth, the flood, then I, I interpret that to mean that he's speaking as uh, a man, not as a prophet. Uh, to put this in another, from another uh, viewpoint, when I was a missionary many years ago in West Virginia, we were meeting with uh, a minister of the reorganized church, and there were a number of reorganized families in that neighborhood, and I knew very little about the reorganized church, and so I did a, some reading on uh, LDS history of that era. And I came across a statement by John Taylor, who at this time he was a member of the 12 and not president of the church, and so I will call him Elder Taylor because he wasn't president yet. But he, Elder Taylor said that the church is accountable only for what is taught in the scriptures. And he's ignoring, of course, the, interpretate, the problem of interpretations. But he said that the church is accountable only for what is taught in the scriptures, and it is not accountable for the statements of any elder. Well, I, I, think, I think that, so that I, is I have a total cop-out. Well, you, know, you can because, call it a cop-out, but I've taken that very literally, Seth, that I consider the prophet speaking as a prophet when he wants us to know that we are speaking as a prophet. And he'll do this through letters from the First Presidency that are signed under his signature. He'll do this through statements, perhaps, where it's very clear that he, he makes it very clear that this is, this is the word of the Lord. Okay, so... And the, the one last comment. The general authorities of today have learned by the experience of the earlier generation, earlier decades, that they, they really need to focus upon the spiritual aspect of their calling and not upon the, the physical aspect. They need to Let keep the their freaking mouth shut, that. right? That's yeah. what they've learned that they just need to keep their trap shut because, because every time Young's, you go back... In Brigham Young's time, the apostles were very open to talking about men on the moon, men in the sun, uh, the evils of uh, evolution, whatever. They talked about a lot of things that weren't pertaining to the, the spiritual growth of the people. And the leaders right. of today have learned to not do that. So they well, focus the, on You would like to think so. You would like to think so, except, okay, first of all, let me back up for a moment, because you said, okay, here's this quote that the, the church is only accountable for what's taught in the scriptures. Well, I would like to point out that, no, you're not even accountable for that. Because when the scriptures are proven wrong, you just write it off as metaphorical. So you're not even really being held accountable for what's in the scriptures. 
So, so basically, the, 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 the prophets get to say whatever they want, and the scriptures say whatever they want. And if the scriptures are untestable, then it's accountable to that. You're, we're all accountable for that. If they are testable, okay, you can fudge a little bit and say this is metaphor, but we're going to be accountable for everything else. It's almost like you're creating an unfalsifiable situation. And, and secondly, I think you're ignoring all the things the church has stated about how authoritative the um, the modern-day apostles and prophets are supposed to be. Okay, so the words of the apostles and the prophets today are supposed to be scripture to us. When you go to conference and they speak, we're told repeatedly that those conference talks are scripture. You know, you got the who, Enzyme magazine. Who has told, these who has told you that? Who has told uh, you that? Well, Brigham Young told us that for one thing. Well, I discount anything that people in his era have said in terms of <laughs> things that no. Let me finish. I discount anything that the apostles back in his time up to the early part of the 20th century, when they talk about unknowns, when they talk about things that can't be explained clearly. Yeah, because because, because, because they, they were they, because it's not it's hard for us to tell what is what they were inspired in, what they weren't inspired in. So I just discount all of their all of the I did pretty much discount any statement they want to make about. Uh, things that are not clearly explained, but I accept very much things when they talk about the atonement of Christ and the gospel and spiritual things. Well, of course, you know, if you go back to Joseph Smith's day, I mean, he was talking to God, you know, every time someone came to his office and said, hey, you know, what should I do? Oh, thus saith the Lord, you should go on a mission. Should I, you know, ride a horse or take the ferry? Thus saith the Lord, I don't give a care whether you ride the ferry or take a horse. You know, blah, blah, blah. You have 130-something sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, half of which are like, and to you, my servant, Frederick, you know, B. Granger, whatever, I say, tie thy shoe, you're about to trip. You know what I'm saying? It's the Lord telling people like very, very specific stuff where you wonder, why is this even in the scriptures? It's like the Lord telling this guy one very specific thing that only applied to him, and yet we can't get like actual proclamations from today's prophets into the scriptures, but Joseph Smith told some guy to like sell his farm or whatever, and, and there it is. I mean, I'm making that up. I don't remember. You know what I'm talking about, though. I mean, the, 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 the Doctrine and Covenants is like filled with these, you know, ones where someone's even addressed by name and told something specific, right? Joseph Smith was getting revelation for people all the time. You know, he claims he saw God the Father, Jesus Christ, Isaiah, the Apostle Paul, Moses, John, you know, Peter, James, and John, John the Baptist. I mean, you name it. I probably have left out like like 20, you know, historical characters from the Bible or the Book of Mormon or whatever that Joseph Smith uh, is claimed to have seen. These guys were used to speaking authoritatively. When Joseph Smith said, Thus saith the Lord, you believed, if you were Mormon back then, that God just whispered this into his ear. And when Joseph Smith came to some girl and said, The Lord told me that you're given to me as my secret plural wife. I mean, these, these women took it for granted that, that God in heaven just told Joseph Smith to do this Okay, these guys were used to that kind of authoritative speaking, right? And, and so is it really any wonder that Brigham Young would get up and say stuff and, 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 and know that the church would just assume that he was talking to God? Well, I mean, what, what's the precedent? Joseph Smith has a precedent. He was like the, like the prophets of old. I hate Joseph Smith in a lot of ways. I really do because the Mormons today make Joseph Smith out to be like the best guy that ever lived. And I think the guy was a scumbag. 
I mean, he was probably a good guy in a lot of ways, and he was a scumbag in a lot of other ways, okay? But at the very least, when he stood up and, and, and told you, yeah, I have seen God. What, is, what does Boyd K. Packer say? Oh, so, some things are just too sacred to talk about. What, is, what, what a scumbag that guy is. He won't even tell us whether or not he's seen God. He's like, oh, I'm a special witness of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I, I'm just like all the apostles of old, and I'm the, you know, these um, uh, ecclesiastical successor to Joseph Smith and all these other people who saw these marvelous vis uh, visions and had visitations from heavenly beings. But I'm not going to tell you whether I've had any of these things, because unlike Joseph Smith, for whom it was not too sacred to talk about, my experiences are. Well, that's, that's bull crap. It really is. <laughs> It was, it was important, Seth, for Joseph Smith to have visions of those various personages that you've mentioned because the keys of the priesthood were being restored and the foundation of the church was being laid and the revelations were being given to clarify from what the, the Catholics and the Protestants were doing. Today, we don't need that level of vision because those Says things... You. Why don't we need well, this? Let, well, look, we don't, tell me. No, we, don't, we, don't need, we don't need to have Peter, James, and John come to you, Seth Lay, or to me, Alan Lay. We don't need to have I, uh, Elias and wherever the prophets were that came to Joseph. Please say, please say we, Elijah and Elias. I want to hear you say it. Elijah and Elias. As, 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 as separate beings. Do you know why I'm asking you to say that? Why? Because Elijah and Elias are the same thing. One was the Greek word and one was like the Hebrew word. And Joseph Smith got that wrong because he didn't know the difference when he described those as two separate beings. I mean, it's, it's really kind of funny, actually. I just wanted to hear you say it just so I could, like, rib you about it later on. But anyway, go ahead. What I'm trying to say is that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, they lived in a period of time when the foundation of the church was being revealed and established. The keys of the priesthood were being revealed. Today we have those things. And our challenge is not to receive the keys of the priesthood or the foundation of the church, but it's to act upon what we have. There are a lot of bishops and a lot of state presidents, a lot of general authorities who are inspired and who will talk to their, their people from the viewpoint of inspiration. Why is this not recorded? Why should it be recorded? I don't see any need for it to be recorded. It was important, even though, jo even though Frederick, whatever his name was, to take a train and go to here or there or whatever the story may be that you were illustrating, Behind that literal aspect of he doing those things, behind that was the idea that he should be obedient to God. And this is why I think that those things were included in the Doctrine and Covenants because the message that they gave, in addition to the superficial message that so-and-so should do such-and-such such in his personal life, but there was the message of obedience to God and obedience to the leaders of the church and, and following, following them. So those things were retained in the Doctrine and Covenants to teach those basic messages. Today, we we were encouraged to keep our journals today, and hopefully people put into their journals specifically and clearly the spiritual experiences that they have had. It's not, in the, it's not given in scriptures to the church as a whole, but it's given as uh, quote-unquote scriptures to, to that person. By the way, um, I'm going to ask you a question here, and I, I'm asking because I don't remember who it was. Do you recall several years ago, I think it was David B. Haight, but I'm not sure, uh, who actually got up in conference and told this story of when he was like in a coma? Do you remember that? He was like deathly ill, and uh, he was unconscious, and he had some kind of vision, and it involved a sighting of Jesus Christ, and there was some more detail that he put in there, 
I guess he saw Jesus on the cross or something like that. I don't remember. Do you recall that? I'm I'm sorry, I don't. Yeah, this was this was actually in the last I don't know the last ten years, let's say, because I I it's it's fuzzy enough in my mind. I don't remember any more than that. Maybe somebody on the on the forums or somebody will will give us the citation. But basically, one of the apostles was deathly ill and had this vision while he was unconscious, and actually gave it gave it in a talk or or re, uh, mentioned this in a talk in in general conference. And I just think it's the funniest thing, and I'll tell you why. Because you have Boyd K. Packer on the one hand saying, we're not going to tell you if we see God because some things are just so sacred we never talk about it, wink, wink, nod, nod, so that the faithful Mormons would read into that, yeah, we see Jesus all the time and, you know, we know things. Every time we look at you, our eyes are boring into your soul because we have all these magical powers because we're, you know, apostles and we see Jesus and stuff like that. Yeah, so the faithful Mormons believe this, but he's not actually claiming that he saw Jesus. And he's telling you that they're not going to tell you because it's such uh, such a, um, a, um, a, uh, a sacred thing. And yet... The first apostle that actually does have something like a vision, you know, in, in like uh, while he's in a coma in his deathbed where he claims to see Jesus in this vision while he's unconscious, bam, he stands up and talks about it in, 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 uh, in, in conference. And I'm thinking, really? So why wasn't that too sacred to talk about? All right, so this guy was in a coma and had a dream or a vision, and so he sees Jesus admittedly in a dream, not in a, in a physical way. And he's going to tell us about it, and all the Mormons are going to be like, ooh, see, we told you he saw Jesus. He had a vision given to him. All right, I want to know if Jesus appears in the Salt Lake Temple. I mean, is there any truth to the rumors that there's like some special room that the prophet goes to in order to talk with Jesus? Oh, that's too sacred to talk about. Bull crap! It wasn't too sacred to tell us about your, you know, your, your the 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 dream you had while you were in a fever. It wasn't too sacred for Joseph Smith to tell us, you know, ten or fifteen years after the fact that he'd seen God the Father and 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 Jesus Christ in 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 the third or fourth version of his first vision story. I mean, it wasn't too sacred for any of the uh, apostles and and so forth in in the um, in the prophets in any of our scriptures to tell us that they had seen the burning bush or heard the voice of God, or saw God's finger touching the stones, or any of these other things. And yet, in our day and age, it's too sacred to talk about. Well, I think it's pretty transparently obvious that, the, that, that none of these guys are seeing Jesus, ever. But they can't just come out and say that, because so many Mormons think that they do, that if they do come out and admit, yeah, I've never seen any of these things, then you're going to have people losing their faith. In fact, I remember uh, Gordon B. Hinckley was kind of pressed on this um, in an interview. I can't remember if it was the one he did with Mike Wallace or the one he did with, like, Larry King or something. And he was asked right out, have you seen God? And what has Gordon B. Hinckley said? I felt his presence. Well, that the way he said it could be read in a couple of different ways. The true-believing Mormons are going to be like, okay, he's talking to someone in the world who just wouldn't understand, so he's going to downplay his interactions but he's not going to say anything untrue, but he's going to downplay it so as not to cast his pearl before swine. But we know that, of course, he really has. But in reality, he's telling you, no, I haven't seen him. I felt his presence, which is no more than every other Mormon who claims to, you know, to have had a spiritual experience could tell you. 
I mean, there's absolutely nothing that these guys are saying that any one of us couldn't have experienced. And, and yet they're not going to just come right out and say, yes, we have, or no, we haven't seen Jesus. They're just going to let the faithful keep believing that they have. And, and I think it's, it's such a con. Anyway, go ahead. I've, I bloviated for a couple minutes there. <laughs> I, I, I have no comment to make other than, you're, obviously, Seth, you're welcome to have your opinion and interpretation of this. Why those brethren didn't be more explicit, you'd have to ask them. Sure. I, I, here's brother the, brother Haight, if I get, unless I get my names confused, Brother Haight has passed on, so you may have to wait until the next life to ask him. But you may have to ask them, you'd have to ask them, why they took the viewpoint they did in terms of these spiritual experiences. Have, have you noticed that in this entire conversation so far, my positions seem to really leave not much unexplained and be very parsimonious in the sense that they, they, they seem to answer the questions with the least imposition of unsubstantiated claims, whereas you seem to have the, um, well, I mean, the, the, the beliefs which require the most hand-waving exercises. And every time you say, well, I believe this because of faith, I mean, that really is kind of like a big hand-waving exercise. You say, I believe in science, and I believe in all the same things that you believe in. And then on top of that, I attack a God, and I have no other justification for that than that I believe and have faith. And then you wave your hands a little bit, and a little bit of woo-woo noises are heard. And, and those are your reasons. And I think that that's not nearly as parsimonious as mine. You have a point. I can't disagree with what you said. I've mentioned several times that I believe that God works through natural laws, and that if those natural laws were taken away from God, they would give a pretty much a complete picture of what's going on. And a person who didn't believe in God could look at that picture and say, well, this is it. There's no God here, and this is what, what happened. And that's, the, that's, the, what, that's what you're doing. I take the additional st step that I have faith in God, and so I say that God is behind the scenes and working with, with these natural laws. Um, as we near the end of this conversation, um, I, I kind of wanted to make a point here, and I'll, I'll kind of wrap that up with um, a, a bit of a thank you in a way. I'll get to that in just a moment. Okay, I wanted to remark that, that your kind of faith, in my opinion, is the kind of faith that's basically set up for generational failure. And what I mean by that is I don't think that your faith that you have personally is the kind of faith that you could expect to last for more than just one generation. In other words, when you die, you're going to take all that, that with you, and it's not going to be inherited by the next generation. And I mean, institutionally, if the church were to adopt your version of Mormonism, I don't think that the church would last more than one generation. And the reason why is that it doesn't add anything. I mean, you, like, like I pointed out, you're perfectly willing to say, okay, I'm going to buy the scientific version of all of these explanations. And then on top of that, I'm going to tack on this sort of arbitrary religious claim that isn't really motivated by any evidence or any logic or rationality. It's just, it's just you know, a bunch of uh, sort of post hoc defenses against, you know, scriptural metaphor uh, and, and non, you know, non-factual scriptures and like contradictory statements by past prophets and everything else. And, and I just really don't think that you're adding anything of value on top of the naturalistic explanations. Your version of everything is exactly the same as my version with a, with a bit of God tacked on top. 
And since that God isn't motivated by any reason, it's, it's, it's superfluous. It doesn't do anything for people. And I don't think it's a recipe for success long term for a belief system. I think that for the belief system to last hundreds and hundreds of years, it has to make some pretty strong claims and it has to provide some pretty strong answers. And the churches that have lasted for a long time do make all these claims. Even the Mormon church doesn't really believe what you believe. You have like your own version of Mormonism, the, you know, the apostles and the prophets. They, you know, they still, I mean, like the Mormon church today in, the, in that recent Pew study that came out a few months ago, I mean, more Mormons disbelieve evolution than pretty much every other religion out there except for like the Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, evolution. And I know that this is, is probably true because just anecdotally in my own uh, not family in terms of like uh, my side, like you and mom and, and um, Chad and, and, and my sisters and stuff, but like in my wife's family, I mean, of the, of the siblings of my wife who are still faithful in the church, I think they all believe that evolution is a pile of crap. It just seems that wherever I look, I see Mormons who just reject the science, unlike you, but the Mormon church as a, as a whole, like the, the chapel Mormon that Dr. Shades likes to talk about, still is kind of like science deniers and scriptural literalists and stuff like that. I think they have to be. And if they, if they ever give that up, I think the church is doomed. And you know, that's, that'll be the church's last generation is the one that adopts a faith like yours. You're right in saying that when I die, my my vision of things will go with me, and that's true, because I'm not the prophet. I don't speak for the church, and the ideas that I have are just strictly my own ideas, and so when I die, they, they go with me. Whether or not the church will disappear if it were to adapt to accept more a scientific viewpoint and like revolution and less a literal interpretation of the scriptures is something that I don't I can't say. I don't know. I do, as a personal belief, of course, I do believe that as time goes on that more people in the church will realize that the scientific approach has value and that they will not discount it per se because they will realize that the narrow vision that they have had of things in terms of the creation and evolution and the flood and so on comes from a very narrow, very literal interpretation of the scriptures. And I believe as time goes on that people will realize that the scriptures were never intended to be taken that literally and that narrowly. And so that this broader picture will emerge as the predominant belief in the church. But, of course, this is only my own viewpoint, and it's biased, of course, by that's how I feel. And, and <laughs> and since well, and it, exactly. since that's how I feel, that's how everybody has to feel, because my way is correct, of course. Yeah, exactly. Just, just joking. Exactly. No, no, I, I, think, I understand. I think that the things you've said about the church people in general not accepting evolution is, is very true. And whether or not the church will remain because of the people remaining that way or whether the church will continue to remain if the people of the church change and accept a more broad-minded or more liberal interpretation. I don't know. I can't say on that. Okay, so you're, I guess... You're, um, you're, very, you're very true that Mormons in general do have this very literal interpretation of, of things. If you have a situation where even the apostles and the prophets and like most of the church members sort of disbelieve the science and, uh, you know, believe in this, um, you know, uh, scriptural literalism and, and denial of evolution and, and, and things like that, and, and they're wrong. Well, why doesn't the prophet go to God and ask? If these guys are really talking with the creator of the entire universe, they could find this stuff out in like five minutes. 
So, so why don't they? Maybe they have gone to. Maybe they have gone to God. I don't know, and you don't know. We don't know what discourse the prophet of the church has had with God, but we do know that the church hasn't changed its course, which I feel means that these things, such as the creation and the literalism of the flood and whatever, are not really important. The important thing is the atonement of Christ and the. Are living the gospel and doing what we can to be like Christ and to follow Him and as true disciples of Him. And looking at my life over the past fifty years, there has been an almost a complete overhaul of the church in terms of the this attitude towards the atonement. I grew up thinking that the gospel was the preexistence, the Book of Mormon, the Bible, a missionary work. But there's no talk about Christ. There's no talk about the atonement of Christ. There's no talk about being true disciples of Christ and letting Him be our mentor and our example in life. But since that time, literally, a revolution has occurred in the church looking more at what I consider the important spiritual aspects of the church and forgetting these other details that are interesting but not really critical to our salvation. So I think that the church has had this revolution. Sure. So, so basically your answer to my original question is the whole it's not relevant to our, to our salvation. You mean in, in terms of these literal things like evolution? Uh, well, or? like no, no. The question is, why doesn't the prophet go ask God if they if they really have this access to God that is claimed? I mean, these guys aren't aren't stuck just guessing in the dark. If they have access to God, they go and ask God. God, you know, was the did the flood of, of Noah really happen? Were Adam and Eve really the first human beings? You know, did, is organic evolution a reasonable explanation for the variety of species that we see today? Uh, once abiogenesis had occurred, these are this is, these are the kind of questions which the creator of the universe would know. And if he's really talking with Thomas S. Monson and stuff in the temple every Thursday in that special room with the Warren chair that don't, that nobody ever sits in except Christ or whatever the you know the 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 myth the Mormon mythology is, well, why doesn't they just ask him? Why hasn't why won't any of these prophets actually walk into the temple and screw up a little bit of courage and say, you know what, God? We gotta know: Is evolution true? You know, I mean, is it a true explanation, et cetera, et cetera? Go down the list of questions, and if you come back and say, "Well, it's not pertinent to our salvation," I have to say, "Bull friggin' crap!" Obviously, it is because I can't take the church seriously because of this stuff. Okay, and I know a lot of people like me who have apostatized from the church because they look at a church making claims which we know are not true and the church loses credibility and the prophets, seers and revelators have lost their credibility and the scriptures have lost their credibility. I can't take these guys seriously because they say whatever they want or at least they did in times past when they were willing to say anything at all and all this stuff is proven false and all we get for answers is just crap and then pay, pray and obey and have you read your scriptures lately and I'd be like uh, the last time I read my scriptures, I read a bunch of, you know, uh, Bronze Age mythology and not a whole lot of, of decent ethics or anything else. Isn't it important? I mean, if it was important to me that the church be credible on this, then, then why would that not be pertinent to our salvation? I mean, according to Mormons, I'm not going to be saved in the celestial kingdom now because I've taken my garments off and I don't pay my tithing anymore and I don't believe in the church and I don't support Thomas S. Monson as a prophet, seer, and revelator and all the rest. So I'm giving up my salvation. So yeah, this is 
This is extremely important to my salvation. If the church is really true, I need to know this stuff so that I could take it seriously. And, and I know a ton of ex-Mormons and, and closet non-believers just like me for whom this is a major, major, major issue. And I simply can't accept that this is so unimportant that the prophets just don't even bother to ask God because, you know, duh, this is just so unimportant that, that why would he waste his time? This is of critical importance. <laughs> okay, number, going back to your original question, Seth, number one, I, again, I can't remember the names, but at least one, I, I have a feeling that it was more than one, but I, I will just quote as, as being one. General authority stated that they leave science to the scientists and focus upon the, the spiritual aspects of the gospel, which is the Christ and the atonement and our discipleship and so forth. So that is an answer to your question that… No, no it isn't. It is. That, it that, is, that, it, that, it, is no, that is a total avoidance it, of the question. It, it's an answer to your, to your question in that, as far as God, taking that literally, as far as God is concerned, our knowledge about the flood, Tower of Babel, the creation, and so forth, all of that will come through science, not through the church. And the church leaders need to focus upon the gospel, which is the story of Christ and the atonement. But you're, so that you're, is, you're that flat is what, out wrong. No. No, no, I'm not you wrong. Are, you're flat Seth, out right? wrong. The scriptures you are full. You, 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 the scriptures ask, are full of the stuff that you're telling me the church is going to leave to science. The scriptures, the scriptures are, are full of, of the stuff, and the prophets, seers, and revelators are full of it in but, in more ways than one. You know, I mean, Joseph Smith. The scriptures are full of these stories, but the purpose the, these stories are given for the purpose to teach faith in God and obedience to God. They're not given you, to teach us the fact. They're not given to teach. The house and wise of the flood, or the house and wise of the creation, they're given to teach us about faith in God. God is our parent; He's created the earth as a, a mortal home for His children, and our obedience to Him. So you look at look at the how, but don't look at the why. Leave that to the scientists. And this is an answer to your question: in that they go to God, they pray, tell us about the flood, and He's telling them, in effect, don't worry about the flood. Leave that to the scientists. You focus upon Christ. But, but that's first of so, all, that's totally wrong. The cat is already out of the bag because the prophets of old, before they got wise and stopped talking about stuff like that, they said all kinds of things about this. The scriptures said all kinds of things about this. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and, and Parley P. Pratt and all these other, you know, former um, apostles, and prophets, seers, and revelators and all this other stuff. They had all kinds of stuff to say about the very topics which you are telling me now that they won't touch with the 10-foot pole because they're going to leave it to science, but the cat is already out of the bag. They already said this stuff. That's why they've lost their credibility. And you can't just say, oh, well, we're going to leave this to science. No, it's too late for that. They didn't leave it to science. They wrote it down, and they spoke over the pulpit, and they made all kinds of claims which have subsequently been proven dis, uh, untrue, and that's why they have no no credibility in my mind because they didn't leave it to science. They couldn't they couldn't help themselves from opining about all kinds of stuff that now the apostles won't touch with a ten foot pole. Well, Seth, and in so doing, they blew it, and you it cast out of the bag, Dad. I've already explained, Seth, that. Literally, a revolution has occurred in the church in terms of focusing upon Christ like they do today versus focusing upon these various and sundry details like they used to do. 
Now, I hope that you give the church credit, including the, the general authorities, credit for making that type of a change over a span of, of a number of decades. Well, I don't second, really give them credit because se- I don't secondly, think they did it for a good reason. They did secondly, it because they had nothing else they could do. Secondly, Seth, you live in the 21st century, the 20th and 21st century. You don't live in Brigham Young's time. Look at the church as it is exists today. This is your time. You don't live back then. You, you didn't live back then. You live today. So look at the church today and look at the leaders of today and look at what the leaders of the church are saying today and whether or not that is important to you. They talk about Christ. You have to decide, is Christ important to me? Is his atonement important to me? Yay or nay? But you know forget about Forget about the church leaders, what they said in bringing monks time, because you don't live, you didn't live back then. You live today. Look at the church today. Get the church latitude to make a change from the apostles on down, to make a change in their viewpoint and the focus that they focus upon. And that today, in your time, they leave science to the scientists and they look at the spiritual aspect. And that's a good suggestion for you to follow. You know what the you know what the apostles and prophets say to me today. I mean, you just said it. The church. Oh, I should look at the prophets and the apostles of today and listen to what they're saying. And you know what I hear from them? I hear pay, pray, and obey. And that's about it. These guys get up every six months and they read us the same old stuff. You know what I mean? You know, be good. Read your scriptures. Be faithful to the church. You know, don't touch your private parts unless you're married. And, don't, you know, don't beat your wife. It's, I mean, they say the same things every six months. And that's not to say that they don't say some, you know, some wise stuff. But nothing that they're telling us these days is anything that, that normal, like, virtuous, non-religious uh, believers don't also tell us. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing that these guys are telling us that couldn't have been um, invented by the mind of a uh, good-natured and well-meaning human being. And as far as credibility of them speaking for God, well, there just there is none. And I'm not going to obey these guys. I, I see the whole pay, pray, and obey thing is, is, is kind of cultish. And I, I, I really don't want to say, oh, the Mormon church is a cult because then, you know, Mormons will just stop listening. That's not what I mean. I mean, I think all religions are cults if you want to use that word at all. But when they say obey the leaders, the first principle of heaven is obedience. Obey, 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 obey. I look at the whole world and the history of religions, and I see that as a gigantic red flag. When, when the focus and the first law of heaven and everything else is all about just rendering obedience to the guys who claim to be telling you or who claim the right to tell you what to do on behalf of the creator of the entire universe, that is a gigantic red flag to me. So, and, and, I, and I think that history bears this out because you know history is just riddled with people who got up and said – by the way, the creator of the universe appeared to me, and he has given me the right to tell you all what to do in his name. I mean, you can't deny that, that, that churches and religions and shamans and so forth have been doing that for thousands and thousands of years. It's almost literally the oldest, like, con in the book. And, and that's, you know, the dressed-up, nice-looking, well-groomed version of that is, is what we get in the Mormon church today, and not much more. It's... Uh, but anyway, sorry, that's my, my anti-testimony. <laughs> I've never heard a general authority say that the first principle is obedience. I've heard a lot of local leaders. Well, bishops, uh, Joseph say, Smith said say. it. Joseph, Joseph Smith is supposed to have said the first principle of heaven is obedience. 
<laughs> well, or, or the first law of heaven, or something like that. Joseph send, Smith said send, it. Send me the send me the reference by email so I can can look at it. Because okay, I, I personally mean, I personally believe that the first law of heaven is love, and that obedience comes as a result of love. Obedience without love is a cult. Obedience with love, obedience well, due to, obedience due to love is the way of God. You're going you, to backpedal on this. I apologize. No, Je- Je- Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say keep my commandments. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. No, no I, love, I'm love apologizing to you in advance. Obedience gonna, will come because of love. You're going to be eating your words, and that's okay. I, I, I totally am going to understand, and I'm not even going to grind your face in it when you do. But Joseph Smith did actually say it. The first principle of heaven or the first law of heaven or something like that is obedience. And, and you can't, send, and you can't send me the reference. The, send me the reference, and I'll accept it if it's credible. And you can't, and you can't deny that that's been a pretty consistent theme throughout the the church's history. I mean, obey, a, obey, obey. I've, when the brethren I've speak, never, I think he's been. I've done. never, as I said, I've never heard that on a general level from Salt Lake. I've heard it on a local level from bishops and priesthood leaders. Yeah, and well, I, I've, I've I've always disagreed with it. I've always felt that love was first, and that obedience had to come due to love. Obey if you love me. Keep my commandments. The Savior said, "If obedience without love means that we are robots, we're cults. Obedience because of love. We love the children first. We love the church first. We love the Lord first, and then we obey because of that love. Then we become can become devoted servants. But we have to have love before obedience. So send me the reference by email so I can look at it." All right, and I just wanted to say, you you said obedience without love or whatever is is just a cult. I wanted to interrupt you and say, thou sayest, but um, (laughs) I had to let you finish. But, yeah, I get that in (laughs) after the fact. Yeah, you said it, man. Those are your worries, not mine. Um, That's right. Well, we have to wrap this up. Already this is probably going to have to get chopped into a couple of, um, of, of segments. I wanted to thank you for coming on uh, to, to this podcast. And I wanted to thank you for more than that. I think it's pretty obvious that one of the things that contributed to my apostasy is my sort of openness of mind and willingness to engage ideas and not shrink back from them. And I cannot claim the credit for that myself. It's, it's pretty obvious to me, you know, and it's been obvious to me for some time, but especially in this conversation, I think it's pretty obvious to everybody who, uh, who hears this, that I probably have as open a mind as I do because you have as open a mind as you do. And that you have demonstrated a willingness to think outside the box, to sort of break with traditional ideas, to not have a shelf, to engage all of the things mentally that you recognized in the past as possibly presenting problems to your faith, that you were willing to engage those rather than shrink back and and, and kind of avoid all the sticky issues I mean, you wrote that book a few years back, you know, your, I don't know what it was, 50 or 60 pages or so with your ideas. You've got the website, you put your ideas out there, and, and you do seem to be willing to take pretty much anything and deal with it one way or the other. And, and whether I agree with, your, with the results of you dealing with it, at the very least, you haven't put me off or anybody else off and said, I'm just going to put this on the shelf and not think about it. You might, you might put something off and say, well, we don't have the resolution to that now and maybe we will in the future. But that's not really the same as putting it on the shelf 
because you are thinking about it. And I, I want to thank you for that because I think that I got my questioning mind and my willingness to engage things probably from you. And I'm kind of thinking back into my childhood trying to wonder, you know, what aspect of, of how you guys raised me led me to have as questioning of a mind as I do. And I, I can't really put my finger on it, but I think it's pretty obvious that that's, that I, you know, you, you had it first. I've just taken that willingness maybe a step further than you. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that to boast. I'm just saying you, you questioned and came up with answers and made the decision that your answers are going to conform to the prime directive that the church is true. And I did the same thing, except I didn't maintain that prime directive. And uh, that probably explains the difference between us. Right. I think your, la- that your last statement there really summarizes it up. Now, I'm glad that both of us have had an open mind, and I think it's a compliment to both of us that we've had open minds, even though we've gone in different directions. I've gone the direction of a, a apologist, an apologist. <laughs> taking my, my faith first and then the open mind rationalizing both both viewpoints to, to try and merge them together into, into harmony. You've gone off, gone off in a different direction, and that's fine. That's that's the choice that you've made. But I think it is a compliment that we both have had, to some degree, op- open minds about it. I've enjoyed this conversation, Seth, and I've appreciated the invitation that you've given me to, to talk with you. I think it's been good for both of us to, to share ideas and to understand where, how each person feels about things. That's, yeah. it shows, that shows my respect for you, and it shows your respect for me. Well, um, that's that's great. Yeah, thank, thanks a lot, Dad, for, for saying that. Thanks, thanks again for you know agreeing to, to appear with me on this on this podcast and to discuss these issues. Uh, just like I, I, I wanted to just remind everyone of what I said at the beginning of this that a lot of apostates and, and uh, you know non-believers and stuff are afraid to discuss these things um, with their parents and their in-laws. And, and, and their family members and their friends and stuff in the church for fear that they'll, they'll be ostracized. And, and, and I certainly don't feel that, that way at all. And uh, I know that we can talk about this stuff and I can even get pretty aggressive and just tell you I think your beliefs are full of crap or whatever and that I'm still your son and, and you don't reject me. And, uh, and I really have no fear on that account. So thanks again. And uh, everyone, thanks for tuning in to uh, Mormon Expression. Uh, once again, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that the discussion continues at uh, mormonexpression.com. This has been Seth Lay thanking you for listening to Mormon Expression. And uh, I'm signing off. Have a good one. See you later, Seth.